This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khan Nam. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have a really important show today. And we're going to talk about the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Jerusalem. But this is occurring in a larger context, what I'd like to say the ongoing tale of two cities or two countries or two worlds where wealthy countries are enjoying the benefits of the COVID vaccine, but we're seeing devastation being brought to poorer countries who are getting less access to the vaccine. So we're seeing countries like India, Brazil, and African subcontinent really being decimated by the the COVID epidemic pandemic. So we'll get to that probably in another show, but it's another version of, you know, the economic disparities that are occurring that have profound impacts uh, on all of us. The second thing is that uh, Netanyahu was not able to form a government. The The Israeli president has now given the opposition leader a few weeks to see if they could form a government. We may or may not have time to talk about that today. But I think really what's flying below the radar for most of the mainstream media, Jamal, is the persistent attempt to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from Jerusalem. And they are upping the ante in creating this uh, attempt to rid Jerusalem, the holy city, of any Palestinianness, And it, it seems like it's escalating. It is escalating, uh, Jess, and uh, I think it's not that it's flying below the radar. I think they're ignoring it. It's not like the media, especially in the U.S., does not know what's happening on the ground. They're just totally ignoring it and giving Israel, as usual, a pass. We have a great guest. First, we'll go to our great guest, Miko Peled. Uh, who speaks about this uh, and speaks about the ethnic cleansing of uh, Palestine in general and and Palestinians in in Jerusalem and the latest uh, report uh, by the Human Rights Watch. Let's uh, watch uh, Miko Peled. On April 27, the leading international NGO, Human Rights Watch, issued a 213-page report titled A Threshold Crossed condemning Israel for committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution against Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territories and in Israel itself. This week, we are continuing discussing this important topic with Israeli-American activist and author of the books, The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation, Five, Mr. Miko Pellet. Welcome to Arab Talk, Miko. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you. Is it becoming harder to deny that Israel is an apartheid state, Miko? Well, I think it's always been hard to deny it. I think uh, that it's, uh, you know, when, when, when organizations, when NGOs decide that they uh, finally to, to recognize this officially, um, it's better late than never, I suppose. But I don't think it was ever hard. I think denying it was 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 an attempt at something that's absurd because you cannot deny Israel as an apartheid state because its very founding was based on an apartheid idea, on a racist apartheid idea of separating two different populations. 
So I don't think there was ever a problem in 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 uh, in identifying that. Denying it, of course, is a problem. Well, last week, you know, we spoke to human rights attorney Diana Buto, and she said that uh, most Israelis, as you said, they don't actually now deny that apartheid exists, but they don't. Many of them don't care. This is what uh, we saw in the behavior of the Kahanists marching in the streets of Jerusalem. I mean, is this the case? I mean, they see it, but they bury their heads in the sand? No, they don't bury their heads in the sand. They think it's okay. And the, the people we saw marching in Jerusalem over the last few weeks were not Kahanists. These were just normal Israeli youth. This is not some unique, crazy group like used to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it would be a small group of extremist Kahanist settlers. These are Israeli youth. They're of all, all shapes and forms from all, all parts of Israeli society. I don't think this was anything, they were unique. Uh, and Israeli society is racist, and they accept that they're racist, and they see nothing wrong with it. Obviously, they, ex they express it in, in the clearest and, and most honest terms, if you will, that they are racist, and they want to the Arabs, maybe not to die, but at least to get the hell out. They say it very, very clearly and openly, as do their leaders, as does their military. So why would they want? Why would they not? Why would they deny it? Why would they bother? But this is not how it was represented uh, in the media. Not definitely not here, and and definitely e even in the Israeli media, because that's actually very interesting. What you said that these are regular Israeli youth. They they try to 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 blame it on on Lahava, and they try to blame it on the Kahanists, and that they, this is that this was an an, an extreme fringe of uh, the Israeli society. There's nothing fringe about Lahava anymore, and there's nothing fringe about Kahana. His followers are, have been in the Knesset for a very long time. His people have been members of the Netanyahu cabinets over the years. So we had a, uh, you know, it's there's nothing, nothing fringe about these groups anymore. They used to be fringe maybe many years ago, or at least considered fringe. I think they represented Zionist thinking to its fullest, really. But... Today, they are everywhere and they represent, uh, I think they represent the mainstream. I do not think there's anything fringe about these people. I just uh, read uh, today in the news that the Israel's uh, president has tasked Lapid to form a government. I don't know if this is going to succeed or not, but I mean, do you think that uh, any future Israeli government uh, will have a plan for peace, or they just want to maintain the status quo indefinitely? The, de, Israel has never been interested in, in, in peace. I don't think I'm, I'm saying to you anything that you don't already know. Israel has never been interested in peace, and we know that. And um, I think the, uh, you know, Zionism is very, very clear about its intentions, and all the Zionist political parties have shown that very, very clearly. I don't think we're going to see, first of all, I don't think Lapid's going to be prime minister, just to make it clear. Netanyahu is going to come back very strong and he's going to lead the next government. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, what we're seeing now are political maneuvers. Um, but um, I think that what, what Israel has always been doing is they would have a government that portrays some kind of statesmanship, some, time, some kind of a desire to perhaps make peace. Um, and they would have the more more uh, zealot, not more extremist, but just more zealot groups 
In the beginning in 48, this was the generation of my father, the young men who joined the Haganah and the Palmach and the other militia and actually executed the ethnic cleansing and the massacres of 1948. Today, they're called settlers, they're called the Hava, they're called Kahanists, but it doesn't matter. They're the ones who are kind of leading the camp. They're spearheading the actions, but what they do represent the, the wishes of the people and the wishes of the government anyway. So that's really the dynamic. And I don't think it matters who, who is prime minister, though, like I said, I'm pretty I'm fairly confident it will be Netanyahu. But in terms of what we see on the ground, I don't think we're going to see any changes at all. Uh, you're actually bringing a, a very important topic. Israel's basically always uh, creating facts on the ground. And, uh, you know, uh, we're witnessing now a total of 28 Palestinian families, uh, around 550 people who live in the Sheikh Jarrah uh, district in East Jerusalem. They are now at risk, and some of them have already been evicted uh, to be forcibly, forcibly evicted to be replaced by Israeli settlers. So yes. these uh, imminent evictions are the latest in the long history of demographic engineering uh, in, in Jerusalem to create uh, Jewish ma majority. I mean, is this part and parcel of this whole thing? Let's keep talking about peace, playing this game, and then keep ethnically continue the ethnic cleansing of 1948. Yes, except I don't think anybody's talking about peace anymore. They realize that talking about peace is bad for uh, anybody who has political ambitions in, in, in Israeli politics. And so nobody really talks about peace anymore, certainly not with the Palestinians. Um, but, you know, Sheikh Jarrah, you know, Sheikh Jarrah has been, this is, I remember pro going to protest in, in Sheikh Jarrah years ago, years and years ago, you know. I have friends who live, Palestinian friends who live in some of these homes in Sheikh Jarrah that were, that were slated to be um, given. But we need to see this again in the larger context. We need to see this in the context of the strategy of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, and particularly what's called the Jerusalem Basin Plan, which calls for the ethnic cleansing of or de-Arabizing, as they call it, or Judaizing uh, all of Jerusalem. And that includes Sheikh Jarrah on one side, includes Silwan on the other side. It includes the old city, of course. Th these are processes, th th this is a process, that process of ethnic cleansing in these places is nothing new. It's nothing unique. It's going on constantly all the time. Um, and this is leading to the grand plan of a greater Jerusalem going from Ramallah in the north to Bethlehem in the south with a uh, new Jewish temple or so-called Jewish temple that they want to build instead of Al-Aqsa. This is the grand plan. Um, and um, I think nobody makes it a secret. Nobody's shy about it. We already saw the American ambassador standing in Intel, you know, the American ambassador to Israel standing with a poster where instead of Al-Aqsa, we see this structure, which they call a Jewish temple. Uh, this is the grand plan, and what people don't appreciate, I'm afraid, is that this is where it's going, and it's going very fast. And the next government is going to take it even closer to its ultimate goal. And something that I don't hear many anyone talk about is the Minister for Jerusalem Affairs in the Netanyahu government, Rafi Peretz, is one of the people of what they call the Temple Mount, uh, you know, followers, the Temple Mount, uh, you know, activists who see this as their goal. And so they put a particularly uh, particular emphasis on this process. And we're only going to see things get worse unless people begin to stand up and boycott and impose sanctions uh, on Israel. 
Well, with the moving of uh, its embassy to Jerusalem, American diplomats cannot ignore what's happening around them. And they, they see it. I mean, now they cannot claim, oh, we're in Tel Aviv. We're not, even though they, they know pretty much. I mean, they're all over the place. Uh, they've had a, a consulate there. But now, I mean, the United States has uh, chosen to have its embassy in Jerusalem. You have the, uh, these people marching in the streets, chanting death to Arabs, and also the evictions happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Why have they been silent? Well, you know, the moving of the embassy, besides being an absolutely absurd in terms of you know diplomacy and international law, uh, was also created a lot of problems because what they did was they took the embassy in Tel Aviv and 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 kind of imposed it on the Jerusalem on the consulate in Jerusalem. Now, what people don't appreciate is that the consulate in Jerusalem was the de facto embassy for Palestine. It was an independent mission. It was not. It did not answer to the Tel Aviv embassy. It answered to or reported to Washington D.C. This is important. And now imposing these two or trying to combine these two entities diplomatically for the actual people who work in the in, on the ground was very very difficult. I remember meeting some of those people, the Americans who worked in the in the consulate, and they nobody knew what the hell was going on. So this it they created a very complicated issue. The reason they're silent is because. America has a Zionist foreign policy, a Zionist uh, Secretary of State, a Zionist president, and they see nothing wrong with young Israelis chanting death to Arabs and let's kick the Arabs out. They see nothing wrong with it because that's what Zionism is. Zionism is about killing Palestinians and displacing Palestinians. That's really the simplicity of it and replacing them with Israeli Jews. Why would they speak out when they don't speak out against massacres in Gaza or the ethnic cleansing in the Naqab, where they've demolished thousands of homes every year? You know, they don't speak out against any of these things. And Jerusalem is part of this larger uh, campaign to Judaize Palestine, to de-Arabize Palestine, to destroy whatever monuments in history, rewrite the history of Palestine over the last 1,500, 2,000 years. This is part of the same strategy. So when you're a Zionist, you really sign on to all of this. You cannot be a Zionist and say, well, I'm a Zionist except for Jerusalem. I'm a Zionist except for Judaizing uh, the Galilee or the Naqab. That's not how it works. Well, the Biden administration, at least uh, President Biden, uh, has um, his slogan, right, part of his campaign uh, after winning the elections is uh, that America is back, meaning public diplomacy and diplomacy at large. I mean, that's why I said, even with moving the embassy into Jerusalem, I mean, at least this is like, even though this is a very much uh, despised move by many people, uh, especially Palestinians, they cannot deny the fact that they are now right there in Jerusalem and they're seeing everything around them and they wanna, they're talking about peace, but they're not doing anything about it. I mean, I mean, um, I mean, how can they cope with this? Trying to basically preach to the rest of the world uh, about human rights when human rights is hitting them around the corner, right on the heads. You know, there's this, uh, there's this claim out there that if, only, if Americans only knew, then things would be different. Uh, well, Americans know. It's not if Americans knew, it's if Americans cared. They know, but they don't care. They knew even when they were in Tel Aviv. I mean, what is it, a 40-minute drive from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv? It's not like they were in some kind of outpost in the middle of nowhere. They knew, and they continue to know, and now they're on the ground. They can probably hear the chanting from, from, where, from where they are. 
Um, but they, they, they don't care. Again, it goes back to the basic, to the basic uh, acceptance of Zionism by the State Department, by the United States, by the American administration. Um, and that's, and peace is not something that anybody even remotely talks about. And they think actually that they're making progress with peace because Israel has signed these normalization agreements with a few Arab regimes. So they're saying, well, the Palestinians don't want to be a part of it. It's their fault. It's their problem and so on. Um, this is how they mask the issue. Um, but this, the, the, there's no interest in peace in, in the kind of peace that you and I would, would envision. There, there, there's no talk. There's no interest. There's no reason to be discussing this. And, and, and again, it's not because they don't know. It's because they mostly don't care. And the sad thing about it, I mean, okay, we can, we can see politicians playing their game. But you also, as you know, being in Jerusalem and, I, and, and me uh, being a Jerusalemite, uh, Jerusalem is full of uh, foreign reporters, especially American reporters, etc. Yeah. And we have very, very little coverage about the marches in the streets, the human rights report, the Beth Salem also report, all these things that, that are like, that happened just within the past few months, just uh, reconfirming that Israel is an apart apartheid state, and they just like ignore it. Why so? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think they care. Again, once you buy into Zionism, then you don't. Then, then obviously you buy into the. You accept that that apartheid in Palestine is a good thing. And again, you know, the moving of of, of the embassy to Jerusalem was part of, of of a larger strategy there was also you know they they kicked out the 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 mission the diplomatic mission from washington dc to this day there is no diplomatic mission there's no palestinian representation in washington dc the house the building where the mission stood once is not far from me actually the palestinian flag is in tatters for some reason it's still hanging there it's still it's still on the building it's torn up it's it's all in tatters and it's very symbolic to the situation in which palestinian uh, the Palestinian question is viewed here in Washington D.C. here in America, but it's it's nothing. Nobody cares. It's it's uh, it's a non-issue, and of course there was also the money taking the money away from or, or stopping funding the the meager funding that the U.S. was providing for UNRWA. Now Trump is, I mean Biden said he'll give some of that. He'll start funding a certain portion of that back. But really, compared to the refugee issue and to the needs of the refugees, what the Americans were giving three or four hundred million dollars a year is is really nothing. Um, so the, the, this, these were three issues that the, the three things that Trump did, and there was an expectation, I think, that that Biden, a Biden administration, might uh, reverse those. But it doesn't look like he's going to reverse any of them. The embassy stays. The mission here in Washington D.C. remains empty. And uh, and the funding of UNRWA is is uh, insulting, really. And again, if they want to stop funding UNRWA, I'm sure the refugees would be very happy uh, if to go back home instead of getting you know be being given charity. But it has to be a complete plan to allow them to return to their homes and then stop the charity. But that's not how it works. And so they, it's they bought in to to this um, you know magnified or or strengthened Zionist foreign policy. That Trump put in place, and 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 they're not going to change that. I don't think there's going to be any change. In fact, I think this year is going to be a very very difficult year for Palestinians and for Palestine, even more so than before. So for many years, uh, the international community, led by the United States, uh, told Palestinians, "Listen, if you behave yourselves, you know, don't resist Israel, don't don't take up armed resistance." Uh, and, and you negotiate with the Israelis, talk about peace, 
you're going to have your state. Uh, now we're seeing, okay, if you call Israel an apartheid state or if you criticize Israel, you know, your persona non grata, I see you uh, wearing a, a large BDS uh, button, which is uh, for the uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. Do you believe that this is now the only road to kind of shake up the world uh, and force Israel to some concessions through BDS? Yeah, I do. I mean, that's why I wear this publicly everywhere I go. And, um, and you know, when I was in South Africa a few years ago, everyone, everyone I spoke to uh, pretty much said BDS brought down apartheid in South Africa. Everyone in, I spoke to in South Africa said that. Um, and this is why, of course, South Africa is a big supporter of BDS, uh, of, of imposing boycott, divestment, and, and sanctions on Israel. Um, I believe that as uh, for those of us uh, who are not Palestinian, those of us who are on the outside, so to speak, BDS is the, is, is the best tool that we have. I think it's a gift that was given to us by Palestinian civil society, giving us direction, giving us a pathway to liberating Palestine, to allowing the refugees to return, to creating a real dem free, democratic, liberated and free Palestine, which is democratic. Um, I think BDS provides the tool, provides the vision, provides the, the demands. And uh, it would be foolish, I think, not to uh, not to follow this and not to accept this call by Palestinian civil society to do the right thing. How will you circumvent all these uh, laws that uh, uh, politicians are trying to impose? Actually, they have imposed in some states, uh, criminalizing uh, people who support BDS. Uh, well, the courts, the courts, the courts have thrown out every every case that that that, that was brought to court was thrown out. Um, and I remember in 2019, the very first bill out of the Senate, S1, was very controversial because it had a BDS clause in it, a clause that would outla out outlaw uh, boycotting Israel. And Senator Chris Van Hollen, who is a junior senator in from Maryland, who is a staunch Zionist, who loves to give money and weapons to Israel, stood up and gave an excellent 29-minute speech in which he explained why he cannot vote for this bill because this is crossing a red line. You cannot tell Americans that they're not allowed to boycott. There's a First Amendment in America and the United States. And so when you have a huge supporter of Israel, a well, you know, self-declared Zionist, standing up and saying, I cannot vote for a bill that outlaws boycotting Israel, you know, we don't need to circumvent it. It is, it is, it is, it, 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 you know I mean? It's the work is being done for us because you cannot tell people not to boycott. So this happening, and again, the courts, and even quotes, the courts and all the court cases. Um, and then we have um, people who have a conscience uh, across the board, regardless of their politics, regardless of their religion, regardless of anything else, really, who understand that when you have an apartheid regime, you have to impose sanctions, you have to boycott, and you have to divest. This is what we, this is how you fight it. This is how you bring it down. This is how South Africa, apartheid in South Africa was brought down. So I think we just need to, you know, broaden the circle of, of friends, broaden the circle of people who understand this so that they appreciate it and, 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 join, and join us in the struggle. What about the Israelis uh, themselves? I mean, you said something uh, actually very depressing that uh, these people who marched in Jerusalem, the young people who marched in Jerusalem chanting death to Arabs, they're not uh, a fringe element, but uh, part of the main society. I yes. mean... Uh, Usually for things to happen, I'm talking about peace, you need also two parties 
and and hopefully a change in the new generation. And if the young generation is uh, uh, more extreme than ever, I mean, is there any silver lining? Is there any hope on the horizon that uh, some of the young Israelis will start to understand that they have to coexist with Palestinians? Racist societies only understand, uh, only change when they're brought to their knees. We saw that in South Africa. We saw that in the United States. When they're brought to their knees, BDS, I believe, is the only tool we have to bring Israeli society to its knees. It's a racist society. It's a violent society. It's openly racist and violent. They're not even ashamed by this. I think the term phrase, the, the, the phrase peace needs to be uh, redefined. What it is when we say peace in Palestine, what we're talking about. I think peace between Israelis and Palestinians is possible in a non-Zionist free Palestine. Once the state of Israel uh, collapses, the Zionist movement um, or the Zionist state is dismantled, hopefully peacefully, um, then in a post-Zionist, decolonized, liberated Palestine, we can have peace between the people, all the people who reside within the, between, between the river and the sea. Peace with a Zionist state, it cannot happen. It's an oxymoron. You can't have, have peace with a racist apartheid regime because they, they, don't, they will never allow it. They have to be defeated. They have to be brought to their knees. And then Israeli societies. When Israelis cannot compete in the Olympics, when Israelis cannot compete in any sporting events, the World Cup, uh, you know, any other, any other sporting event, academic event, cultural event, political event, when the Israelis is, understand that they've become pariahs and they have nowhere to go, that's when we will see change, exactly like what we saw in South Africa. You know, de Klerk was not a saint. De Klerk did what he did and brought, you know, allowed apartheid to fall because he had no choice. He was on his knees and white South Africa was done. Apartheid was finished. Um, that's the situation. That's where we need to, that's where, what needs to happen before we're going to see peace between Israelis and Palestinians. Miko Peled, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's the voice and face of Miko Peled, the uh, Israeli human rights activist, uh, commenting very strongly, Jamal, uh, about the Human Rights Watch declaration of Israel as an apartheid state and really talking about the kind of apartheid conditions uh, for Palestinians, especially in Jerusalem. That's right, Jess. And so... You know, when we talk about the ethnic cleansing uh, of Jerusalem, that's the ongoing. And now, of course, the big story is what's happening in the uh, district uh, of Sheikh Jarrah in, in right. Jerusalem. And that's what uh, we've been focusing on. That's what actually international media has been uh, focusing on, except for U.S. media and other Western country media. But the images are very clear. You have uh, 500 people who are affected, about 550 people, 30-some, 30-plus families who are getting evicted on a, on, a, on a daily basis, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big narrative. You know, people, like, think about this. This is, uh, okay, it's happening now. These settlers are targeting Jerusalem. And, and I want to talk more in more details about... Uh, you know, the targeting of this particular neighborhood, a neighborhood that I, I grew up only That's five right. minutes away from, you know, right. it's, it's, I'm very uh, familiar with it. Uh, but, you know, 
the ethnic cleansing of Palestine began in 1948. So let's not lose sight over this. And has never stopped. Not it has not stopped. Never stopped for a never. single day. And 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 we don't want to go as far as that because we don't have the time. And I I want to go back and 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 recommend two great books to our viewers and listeners. Uh, I recommend Ilan's Pape's book, exactly. The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And exactly. Rashid Khalid's book, The Iron Cage. If someone reads these book, if you read these two books, you get the full picture. I mean, what's happening today, it's no different than what happened in 1948, 1949, 1967, 1968, and so on. It's, it's just a systematic plan that Israel has to rid the country from its indigenous Palestinian inhabitants. And now... The focus, because Israel claims that Jerusalem is its eternal capital, so they have upped the ante on Jerusalem, and That's and, right. and they just want to make sure that uh, you know Palestinians, by hook or crook, whether by force, they get removed, or in in the case of many Jerusalemites, if they left the country for more than three years to be right. to study abroad. They come back, they lose their re Jerusalem residency, and they have been doing this since 1967. Or for a Jerusalemite to even work in Ramallah, which is That's only right. half an hour away, That's right. uh, or marry someone from the West Bank, uh, then they'll come back to their home and they lose their residency because they tell them the center of their life is no longer there. So, Jess... You were born in Detroit. You've been living in California for a good 30 plus years. If you decided to go back to Detroit, could the governor of Detroit say you can no longer live there? No, of course, that's part of an apartheid practice, Jamal. And we know that any, any country in the world, you are free to come and go as you please. You decide what the center of your life is. You decide where you live, what and where you make your home, and how far you want to commute for work. Only the apartheid Israeli regime puts these specific, unique restrictions on Palestinians. They don't say it to anybody else. No other Israeli is kind of put in this position. Only Palestinians are put in this position of having these special uh, ethnic, racial, religious restrictions put on them, and they're looking for any excuse to keep Palestinians out of Jerusalem. I will also say, Jamal, that I think the timing of the increased ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Jerusalem, it can't be lost on any of us that this is occurring at a time when the Biden administration has its eyes on other things, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's what's happening in Russia, whether it's what's happening economically. I mean, they it's not like their eye is on the ball when it comes to what's happening to to Palestinians. And of course, our listeners and viewers should not be surprised that it doesn't matter if it's Netanyahu or Lapid or anybody, this ethnic cleansing project in Jerusalem, Jamal, has been going full steam ahead, irrespective of any Israeli administration. By the way, our guest, uh, Miko Peled, predicts Netanyahu will be prime minister. So, so he, even, he even thinks this whole thing of uh, the president uh, of Israel talking to Lapid, giving him the two weeks, that he won't be able 
to do it, but then Netanyahu yeah. will come back and 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 claim that seat. Right. So so don't and and regardless, I mean, uh, everyone knows it doesn't matter whether it's the Labour or whether it's the the good party or whoever is there. This practice and this is very important to go back to the practice of uh, basically the ethnic cleansing of Jerusalem. You know. Uh, after 1967, referred to as Al-Naqsa, right? This is setback versus Al-Nakba, which is in 1948. Jerusalem and, and basically the entire West Bank presented a dilemma for the Israeli occupiers because, and a demographic concern, just, and that's because Palestinians, unfortunately, in a, in a bad way, learned their lesson from 1948 and refused to leave the land. You know, in 1948... They were somehow promised or they thought, well, one thing, they were afraid from being getting massacred like we've seen in, in, in Deir Yassin and, and, right. and, and other places. But also they thought, uh, you know, the Arab armies will come and liberate them and then they'll go back to their homes. And that's why they left in a hurry, uh, carrying only a few belongings and the keys to their homes, which they never went back to. They were prevented to go back to. In 1967... Most of them, it was totally different. They refused, so they stayed. So that created a, a dilemma for the Israelis because uh, now they, they, they've uh, occupied the land and, and you know their plan is to occupy the land without the people. They, they want the land, but they don't want the people, right? That's right. So, so immediately after 1967, they came up with the alone plan. And this is named right. after Yigal alone with the aim of uh, altering the Palestinian identity of East Jerusalem. That was like the number one. Before they even put their sights on the rest of the West Bank, they said, well, how can we get rid of those Jerusalemites and, and then replace them with, uh, with the Jewish inhabitants? That was part of the, the plan. It's called, anyone can read about this, it's called the, the Alone Plan or the Egal Alone Plan. And, and, they, and they started initially before, before focusing and, and to, to evict the people. They started taking over the hills around Jerusalem that's right. and creating a web of settlements. And that's why I grew up just in Jerusalem and I used to play on those hills. There were empty fields. Right. They were full of fig trees and olive trees and they right. were empty. Now, for someone who goes today and who travels to Jerusalem, they'll see hundreds and hundreds of settlements around there. And so you don't have that imagination. I'm just old enough to remember when those hills were beautiful and, and full of nature and trees and empty. Now they're just basically look like tenements, you know, settlements after settlements, right? So that, that was really the initial plan first to kind of create that belt around Jerusalem and chalk off the, the population before they started to move inside, I would say, inside the old city, you know, and, right. and, and by the way, they right. started also the, inside the old city by destroying just the Moroccan quarter, which is now referred to as the Jewish quarter. Right. See, this was actually the, the Moroccan quarter, or we call it Hayy al-Maghribi, and parts of Al-Sharaf neighborhood. And so you can look at, for example, the plaza where the Wailing Wall, that large plaza, Right. That looks like open and spacious. Right. This was full of homes. Right. Homes right. Who, that were built 650 
plus years ago by the Ayub, uh, Ayubids and the Mamluks, period. Those are historical homes. They didn't care. They sent their bulldozers and, and destroyed this. So that was the initial move into the old city. So now we're seeing them going everywhere, different Well, that's right. That, that's the thing that's really disturbing right now, Jamal. This has been a decades and decades since 1948 escalated 1967 effort to destroy that historical significance of those unique homes that were there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And let's not forget some of the homes there. And, you know, your, your family has one of the most beautiful compounds in all of Jerusalem that is being occupied right now. There's just so much of those homes that remain occupied and, you know, denied Palestinians the opportunity to lay claim to these historical, you know, uh, homes that they've had for hundreds and hundreds of years, Jamal. It's unbelievably tragic. That's right. Uh, and so, so to continue on what I started, I mean, you could see the systematic plan. Right. Just- Right. So, so um, the plan, basically, what the plan says, aside from let's you know get rid of those uh, Palestinians and they realize they cannot get rid of all of them. However, the plan as it stands is to maintain Jewish majority in Jerusalem. over East Jerusalem, and right. they have a formula. It's called the seventy thirty percent formula. They want to make sure that Jerusalem is 70% Jewish and 30% or less Palestinian because according to them, they can cope with this. They're, they're trying to create kind of like what, what happened in Jaffa in 1948, that model in Jaffa where, you know, it could be a touristic city with very few Palestinians living there and change the whole the whole narrative. And that's what I'm saying the reason they co- they are continuing with this ethnic cleansing since 1967. So look look how long it took because right. Jerusalemites have been refusing to leave. They've been like clinging to their homes, and also because of the demographic uh, issue, because uh, it's a higher there is a higher birth rate amongst Palestinians versus this new colonial settlers who are coming from Brooklyn, New York and who are coming from France, and who are coming from Poland, and who are coming from Russia. So that's what kind of like delayed that kind of like total expulsion that the, it right. is continuing up, up until today, because A, Palestinians are refusing to leave, and B, uh, they're winning the demographic war, uh, you know, and, and so they have basically accelerated this whole process now of taking, enti- taking over entire neighborhoods. Silwan is one, Sheikh Jarrah is, is, is another target, Altur neighborhood is another target, and of course, most certainly, the old city. Expanding the Jewish quarter way beyond its, right. its, its area, into the Moroccan quarter, into Al-Sharaf neighborhood, all the way. Actually, they're taking over the Armenian quarter. They're taking over Armenian homes inside Jerusalem, where Armenians lived there for hundreds of years. So, Jamal, what, let me ask you a few questions about that. I mean, since your family's roots there go so far back, um, this denial by the international community to pay attention to this, what impact do you think this is having on 
day-to-day life for Palestinians in Jerusalem who have to bear witness to their these kinds of destructions. What What is it like for Palestinians in day-to-day life in Jerusalem right now? It just must be so harsh and devastating. It's very devastating on all fronts, Jess. It's devastating because A, they're losing their homes. They have been losing their livelihood. Israel also has been uh, for years shifting the economy away from East Jerusalem into West Jerusalem. Right. Like talking about hotels, for example. So when you get tours landing into, a tourist landing into uh, Ben-Gurion Airport, they don't take them to hotels, uh, Palestinian-owned hotels. They put them in Tel Aviv or they put them in West Jerusalem and try to kind of uh, steer them away uh, from uh, East Jerusalem. So they basically are not benefiting from the so-called economical explosion uh, of Israel. The other thing, uh, just it's very important, you asked me about the international community. Here is the funny thing. It's 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 a funny thing in a very sad, sad way. You know Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood? Yeah. Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood is the, the area where all consulates, international consulates, this is where the British consulate right, the EU. is, the EU right in the heart of it, right. the French, you name it. So they, they are bearing eyewitness to what's going on. This is the neighborhood. This is like someone evicting people around the corner from them, and they're keeping silent. Now, the U.S., right, the U.S. consulate used to be by the YMCA, which is, you know, a few hundred feet away from Sheikh Jarrah. It's not too far. Now it has moved further down because now they have an embassy. So now the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador lives in Jerusalem. He can hear the the Jewish settlers marching in the streets, shouting death to Arabs. They can see all, you know, when you have, you know, when you have a full-fledged embassy versus a consulate, it means you have three, four hundred people on staff working. That's right. You have uh, your economic aid uh, department, USAID, their offices around the embassy there, they're right there in Jerusalem. You, uh, you have you have the CIA, you have everyone, everyone around there. So you, they cannot deny that they have not been wet, witnessing this ethnic cleansing around them. Yet, and they say nothing. And they say they nothing, They have been Jamal. silent. They, they have been they silent. They say nothing. Yeah. It's unbelievable. You, let's remind our, our viewers and listeners, when you say there's consulates there, these are the consulates and the embassies for Palestinians. And uh, in Sheikh Jarrah, so uh, the EU, France, and some of the other uh, countries there, it's unbelievable about the silence, the deafening silence, having to bear witness to live everyday apartheid practices, and and it's a deafening silence. It's happening right under their noses. You know, they're they're just right there. They live in the same neighborhood. That's what I'm talking. I mean, of course, you you don't have to see what's going on that, that for it to happen in Sheikh Jarrah. I mean, they know exactly what's going on Absolutely. in the city. They know what's going on, what has been happening in Silwan and other places. But now, 
they cannot deny it. They can open their window, look out of the window, and they'll see the daily demonstrations that Palestinians trying to hold and, and try to support these families and the brutality of the Israeli soldiers and police beating them on a daily basis, arresting them. I mean, those images are all, are all over the internet, uh, by the way, but they don't make it on CNN. They don't make yeah. it on Fox News. Yeah. They choose to bury their heads in the sand. I mean, it is, you ask me about how horrible is this? It's very terrible emotionally, more than the physical aspect of it, knowing that the greatest powers, you know, if you take if taken the United States and the EU collectively, are 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 silent about it. And it's 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 a kind of silence that gives permission to the Israelis, which they they know this. I mean, the Israelis know that people aren't gonna these countries aren't gonna say anything. It's implicit approval of what is happening there. And as we talked about last week, Jamal, here you have the United States finally acknowledging the Armenian genocide and all these politicians saying we will never let these kinds of atrocities happen to anybody in the world. We will call it out. Yet the apartheid practices, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians is occurring right under the noses of the same politicians who say that they will never let this happen in the modern era again. Well, breaking news, it's happening in Jerusalem every single day. Just in the past couple of years, Jess, 182 Palestinian-owned structures have been demolished in East Jerusalem. So Unbelievable. The, the home demolitions. Most of the dem demolitions, Israel claims, because they were built due to lack of a of building permit, which, if even and rarely is issued, it takes years. Uh, for Palestinians to obtain a permit due to discriminatory system of allocation. So most of these demolitions are punitive. You don't see them destroying right. a single illegal outpost of the settlers. Settlers just, just go and, and basically bring a, a, a caravan of trailers and put them on Palestinian agricultural land and claim a settlement and nothing happens to them. They just put put those RVs there and and, That's right. and hang the Israeli flag flag on them. And not only they are not uh, uh, removed, they are protected by Israeli soldiers. Exactly. And, and then just they build. Yesterday, just, then, they torched yeah. fields uh, right. uh, in the hills uh, of, of Palestinian Palestinian villages. There, they basically set them on fire. Yeah, and uh, the, the burning of olive trees, the burning of agricultural land, the home demolition is exactly the, the Israeli plan, Jamal, as we know it. But at some point, we should also talk about Palestinian resistance to being ethnically cleansed because we see the ethnic cleansing occurring every day, but we also see fierce opposition to being ethnically cleansed and fierce opposition to having homes taken away and demolished. It's, it's true, truly amazing to see the steadfastness and the uh, resilience of many Palestinians and their families resisting this kind of ethnic cleansing. Well, in short, Palestinians, especially the young generation, uh, they don't care. They're not afraid. And so that's why you see them on a daily basis, basis demonstrating. But what, what, what can they do? They just demonstrate. They try to, to, to push back the settlers. 
Israel comes with its military, uh, fully armed, arrests them, beats them. A kid the other day, 16-year-old boy, got shot in the back, Jess. In, in the, the back. back. Yes. You know? So, so uh, I mean, it's not a balance of power. Uh, when you have the Israeli settlers, basically they come first armed with an Israeli court's order, which is very biased against Palestinians, saying that, oh, by the way, uh, we found a deed that has, uh, that uh, in most of these deeds, by the way, they're They're forged. They're forged. And yeah. they say, oh, we own the land. And then they get a court order. And then the Israeli, once they get the court order, Israeli uh, troops and, and soldiers and uh, police, they come and uh, surround the area, help them evict the indigenous inhabitants of, of those homes, throw them out on, on the street. In many cases, right. they're not given like a couple of hours to take away their belongings. Right. And that's it. So, so let me ask you, Jamal, what, I mean, because we talked about the human rights declaration of Israel as an apartheid state. We know what's happening in the ICC. So there's some small movement occurring in terms of confronting these apartheid practices. What will it take to put some opposing pressure to these apartheid ethnic cleansing practices? What else can be done for example, our listeners will write to us, our viewers will write to us all the time, Jamal, and they'll ask, what can we do about something like this? And so my question to you is, if someone comes to you today and says, I see that the Israelis are practicing this ethnic cleansing against Palestinians, it is an apartheid state, what can I do as an individual? How would you address that nowadays? Well, uh, you know, our, our guest, Miko Peled, spoke about this. He yeah. appeared on the show, Jess, wearing a big BDS button. That's his <laughs> signature. I mean, this is an Israeli-American who says the only way to bring Israel to its knees, and I'm, I'm, I'm using his word, is through the boycott, divestment uh, movement and sanctions against Israel. Palestinians don't have the advantage or, 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 or you know, the parity to go into war with the Israelis. The international community is not helping them. Uh, United Nations uh, resolutions are meaningless. Israel is not listening to the international uh, uh, criminal court. Basically, they're calling the, the ICC a, an anti-Semitic court. That's what they've been labeling it. The most recent report, Human Rights Watch, now they're trying to poke holes into it and discredit it, including in the U.S. Congress. The U.S. Congress has condemned it, you know, saying that it's, uh, it singles out uh, Israel. So the only thing that is left for them is to go through the same process that happened with apartheid South Africa. Israel is just like South Africa. Well, has worse. To be this is yeah. what Nico Peled and others are, are saying. And they're saying, and these are Israelis, along, of course, with Palestinians and many people in the international. And, and, and they said, unless a strong message is sent to Israel, they're not going to stop. And he said, because from the day one, that's the process. This is the whole uh, you know, foundation of Zionism is really to get rid of the Palestinians and take over the land. Well, Jamal, I think your point 
has to be emphasized time and time and time again. We've been talking about BDS, I, I don't even know how many decades we've been talking about it. But to answer the question, you know, what can people do? I mean, let's remember that Palestinian civil society. I mean, we have to go to the stakeholders. Palestinians are saying to the rest of the world, we need your help against this ethnic cleansing, against these apartheid practices. And what we have decided the way you can help is through the BDS movement. So we can't emphasize this enough, Jamal, that if people really want to do something to promote dignity, legality, ethics, morality, and stop ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Palestine, you need to get on board with the BDS movement. It is because it's getting to, to the point of no return and it's getting to the point that, uh, I mean, look at Jerusalem. What I'm saying to people, and this is a major warning to every place in Palestine, Right. Jerusalem, I look at it like the old city of Jaffa, the old city of Jerusalem, like the old city of Jaffa. Israel wants to create a make-believe city with very few Palestinians living in it. Where it can, it is ethnically cleansing them as we've been from the city. And where it can't, it simply hides them from view. They just want to be able to say, rewrite history and say, oh, we have few, I mean, in a sad way, look at the United States. How often do you see indigenous natives of this country? That's right. Where you and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, how often do, you, do we run into someone who is indigenous? Well, only in casinos, tragically. Well, you know, or you have to travel to places like some reservation in right. Arizona or, or New right. Mexico and very few. But And, and that's, that's the goal. And that's in my opinion, in a very sad way, that's where I, I don't see the sympathy and, and, and the empathy and what, whatever you want to call it, because people are used to it in the West to colonize and ethnically cleanse, and they think it is justifiable, and, and we don't have time to talk about this, but like the recent announcement, right, that was made by the former senator from Pennsylvania, wasn't... Uh, uh, Which one? Rick Sant... Are you talking about Santorum, Rick Sant Santorum, right? yeah. Rick Santorum saying that, you know, the Europeans came to this country and it was empty and we created this country out of nothing. And I'm just paraphrasing here. Because well, he, too much he, time. he's... That's the Zionist playbook right there. So you have Rick Santorum who was one of the biggest supporters of Israeli apartheid, using the Israeli argument against the colonization of indigenous Americans here in this country. It seems like the colonizers use the same talking points, Jamal. Absolutely. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes and... We will continue this discussion next week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>